We are continuing in Mark's Gospel, yes? yes. Um, we're going very slowly, actually. And I still hope we can finish Mark by the end of the year. I think it's still possible. Um, next week, Geordie's going to preach from Hebrews. So we'll have a bit of a break. So that's exciting. And um, today we're going to look at the chapter we just read, Mark chapter 13. We spent five weeks on chapter 12. I'm going to look at chapter 13 in one talk. <laughs> and because it needs to be seen together, it's the most complicated and mysterious chapter in Mark's Gospel. It's the longest continuing teaching of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. Uh, the previous longest continuous teaching was six sentences. This is 39 sentences. <laughs> and it's private teaching to his disciples. Uh, and it's just before... Jesus is arrested, tried, and executed. Are you ready? <clears throat> Alrighty. Chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, if you were here last week, Jesus has just finished fielding questions from the religious leaders in the temple. And mostly they were antagonistic towards him. And he's leaving the temple now, once and for all, never to return. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Despite Jesus' clear statements of judgment on the temple and the temple leadership, in chapters 11 and 12, his disciples are still blown away <laughs> by the architecture and beauty of the temple and for good reason it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world but what the disciples didn't realize is that even though it's gorgeous to look at in reality jesus had said it's a barren fig tree um, you remember that from chapter 11 meaning it looks healthy on the outside but inside it's fruitless it has nothing to show. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 2. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. You think it's impressive. You think it's indestructible. But it's going to be destroyed. This is Jesus prophesying in advance the destruction of the temple. And it's unnerving because 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. There was a war between Israel and Rome from AD 66 to 70, a five-year war. And in the end, General Titus and the Roman army invaded the city and burned the temple to the ground. Notice Jesus says, not one stone here will be left on another. Interestingly, Titus burnt the temple to the ground and when he did, the gold melted into the cracks of the stones and so he ordered for every stone to be taken down so that they could retrieve the gold. And there's not much of anything left now. It's gone. And Jesus saw all of this happening decades before. Now look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting <clears throat> on the Mount of Olives, 
opposite the temple. So now Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives. It's a few hundred metres away from the temple across the Kidron Valley. It's 90 metres metres higher than the temple on the Mount of Olives. And you have a panoramic view of the whole of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives and he said, and it says, Peter, James, John and Andrew. So the inner circle of Jesus' disciples plus Andrew, (laughs) they ask him privately and listen to their question. Verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So this question they ask is a setup for the whole chapter. Pay attention to that. Everything we're about to look at now in Mark chapter 13 is Jesus' answer to their question. Uh, The question is, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? When will this destruction of the temple, not one stone upon another, when will that take place? And how we know that it's getting close, that it's almost time. Now, tragically, people, God bless Nicolas Cage and the Left Behind movie, uh, tragically, people have ripped uh, Jesus' teaching here out of context and made this chapter about the end of the space-time universe. Right? Firstly, it's clear... From the context, this is about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened over two millennia ago. Secondly, even if it was about the future, which it's not, the scripture's vision of the future is not the obliteration of the space-time universe, but rather its transformation, the healing of creation. It's transformation from a world of evil, entropy and death to a world of peace, life and flourishing. But this chapter is not about that future. So to repeat, everything that we read in chapter 13 of Mark is Jesus' answer to the question, when will these things, the destruction of the the temple, not one stone upon another, when will these things take place? Now let's look at Jesus' answer. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. This is the first of three warnings in the passage. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. Meaning many will come and claim to be the Messiah. And when we read accounts of first century historian Josephus, He has accounts of this period of history, the middle of the first century, in his book, The Jewish War, also in his book, The uh, Jewish Antiquities, and in his own autobiography. In those books, we see that in the middle of the first century, the period Jesus is talking about, there were many, many different messianic movements and Jewish leaders claiming to be the Messiah. Many people saying, ah, this is the one, or this is the one. 
And Jesus is saying, don't get drawn away from me. Stay faithful to me. Trust me. Verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, keep in mind that in this world there was no internet and no Twitter. (laughs) So often you wouldn't hear about a war for months or even years. And Roman historian Tacitus says that there were an unusual number of wars in this period of history. Four emperors in quick succession were murdered. There were civil and foreign wars happening at the same time. There were wars particularly and rumours of wars in this period of history. And earthquakes. Earthquakes struck Phrygia, for example, in AD 61 and then destroyed the entire city of Pompeii, which was well known at the time, in AD 63. And Jesus is saying, listen, when you hear of wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes or natural disasters, don't be alarmed. These things must happen, but the end is still to come. It's not the end, it's actually the beginning of birth pains, says Jesus. The analogy of birth pains, of a mother giving birth to a child, means a time of pain followed by new life being born. And this is an image that the Old Testament prophets often used to talk about the fact that one day God would birth a whole new creation. Remember that for later on. Jesus continues in verse 9. Here's the second warning. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will uh, rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus is warning his disciples not only about coming suffering, you know, wars and rumours of wars and so on, but also about persecution. He's saying, you will be singled out for persecution, and they were. And we know from various sources, Christians were hated and misunderstood by the Romans in the AD 60s, particularly under the reign of Nero, the emperor. And also, there were many Jews who hated followers of Jesus because they wouldn't join in on the revolt against Rome. So they were hated by both sides. They were handed over to the local councils. That's the court system of Rome. And flogged in the synagogues, uh, the Jewish synagogues, which basically was to be beaten 
39 times to within an inch of your life. But Jesus is saying, in your darkest moment, when you're on trial, have faith in me. The Spirit of God is with you. He will give you the words to say. This is fascinating. Mark hasn't mentioned the Holy Spirit in connection with Jesus' followers. Only in chapter 1 has he mentioned the Spirit coming down upon Jesus at his baptism. But now Jesus is promising the same thing for his followers, the Spirit upon them and with them. And when Jesus says, verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all nations, I take that to mean first in the sense of preaching the gospel to all nations must be of first priority. So that's how I take that. And I think everything we read here happens in the book of Acts. It's all there. All this stuff happened, not in some crazy far-off future or Nicolas Cage movie, but in the decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. All of this stuff, to a T, is recorded in the book of Acts. And Jesus concludes this section by saying, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the end here isn't the end of the space-time universe. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's the end of this dark, scary, violent time of unrest. And this, this, uh, his word is stand firm, don't give up. Stay faithful no matter what comes at you. But then things get serious in verses 14 to 23. This is the third warning. When you see, verse 14, the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the rooftop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get a cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. This expression, the abomination that causes desolation, sounds like it comes from a Hobbit movie, you know, the desolation of smog or something. The abomination that causes desolation is an expression that we read in Daniel chapter 9. It's also in Daniel chapter 11 and again in Daniel chapter 12. It's about pagan armies surrounding and ultimately desecrating the temple at Jerusalem. And Jesus says there will come a time when paganists, pagan blasphemous standards will be set up in the holy place. When pagan armies will come and do things in Jerusalem that will make you say, how can they possibly do this in the house of God? It almost happened in the AD 40s when Caligula, the then Roman emperor, had a, a great plan to set up a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem. And the Jews were ready to commit mass suicide uh, to try and stop that happening. 
Fortunately for them, at that, that time the plan was headed off, Caligula was murdered, and the whole thing got shelved. Here Jesus is talking about the Romans coming in AD 66 to 70, the Jewish-Roman War. When the Romans, because the Jews rebelled, the Romans slowly made their way down through Galilee to Jerusalem, squashing all resistance, reducing all cities that opposed them to ashes, taking no prisoners, utterly subduing Galilee, then coming down through Samaria and finally to the temple at Jerusalem, invading the temple itself in AD 70, by which time General Vespasian had gone back to Rome to become Caesar. But Titus, his adopted son and heir, and eventually his successor, was the one who took the temple. And Jesus is saying here, in language borrowed from Daniel 9, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it ought not belong. And Mark says, let the reader understand. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that we as the readers are addressed directly. And Mark says, you guys, the readers, pay attention. You're going to have to figure this out. By the way, at this point in Luke's Gospel, Luke knows that his readers will have no clue what the abomination that causes desolation could mean. So he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he just spells that out for them. Thank you, Luke. (laughs) When you see pagan armies come in, you've got to flee. Get out of there. You must not turn back and get a cloak. If you're on the housetop, don't go below. If you're in the field, don't go back to the house. There is no time. Just get out of there. How dreadful it will be for those who have, you know, who are nursing children or who are pregnant and it's hard to flee. Pray that it won't be in winter. This will be terrible, verse 19. Those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. It will be a level of distress not seen since the beginning of the creation until now, and will never be seen again. This phrase, such as has has never been seen and never will be again, is a hyperbolic way of talking that was common in the Old Testament prophets. There are similar phrases in Exodus 9 and Exodus 11, Deuteronomy 4, Daniel 12 and Joel 2. So this was a typical way of talking, a way of saying it will be incredibly extreme. And it was very extreme. 
what we know historically about the sacking of Jerusalem and the burning of the temple is that there was significant, almost unparalleled percentages of death and destruction. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jewish civilians were killed. Thousands and thousands were crucified along the walls of Jerusalem. The Romans cut down all the trees anywhere near Jerusalem to have enough crosses to crucify men on them. So there is some actuality in this being unparalleled. And the shortening of those days means, and this is again a typical prophetic way of talking in the Old Testament, the shortening of those days means that God stopped it out of compassion for his elect, which most likely refers to Jewish followers of Jesus who were caught up in all of this. But this will be a terrible time and you must flee while you can. In other words, you must not stay and join in the resistance. And there will be people who will want you to stay and fight. And they'll say you're a, a traitor if you flee. But you must flee, says Jesus. You have to flee. And we know from history that many Christians did flee. Jesus continues in verse 21. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. If people say the Messiah has come back, here he is. And there were some saying in AD 69 to 70, here is Simon ben Bargiora. He is the Messiah. He is the one, forget your Jesus, come and follow Simon. And there were many other messiahs that rose up in this period. Thutis, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 5, who purportedly did signs and wonders, which was typical of these Jewish messiahs, to try and do signs and wonders. Why were they coming up at this time? Because the prophecy of Daniel said it would be 70 times 7, 490 years since the prophecy and we're in that time. The Essenes uh, community down by the Dead Sea thought it was about to take place. That's why they set up their community and they were praying for the Messiah to come because they read Daniel and they knew it was about this time. So there were many messiahs saying, I am he. This is a Jewish phenomenon at that time. But Jesus says, don't say yes to them. Don't follow them. And you'd be wise to because Simon Bar-Giora was taken back to Rome. That's one of the messiahs. Was taken back to Rome and executed as the climax of Titus's triumphal march. Verse 24, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. 
What we have here is Jesus drawing out imagery, imagery from the prophecies of Daniel, Jeremiah and Isaiah. Because that's the only way you can talk about the temple being destroyed. We use metaphorical language to talk about a great earthquake happening in Canberra or Washington or wherever. In other words, a political earthquake where the Prime Minister or some other leader falls into the cracks and is hurt. We know there hasn't been a literal earthquake in Canberra. There might have been, but that's not the point. <laughs> what we mean is that something earth-shattering, that's another way we talk, something momentous has taken place and we don't have any other good language to describe the enormity of it. In the same way when Isaiah chapter 13 talks about the fall of Babylon back in history, Isaiah says the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will fall out of the sky. And when we read a text saying the sun will be darkened and the moon will turn to blood and the stars will fall from the heavens, we should know that the next line is not likely to be and the rest of the country will experience scattered showers and sunny intervals. Right? This is not a weather report. This is apocalyptic language. It's using cosmic imagery, well known in the prophets, to talk about a major turnaround in the way the world is. And if, if the temple is the place where heaven and earth are joined together, it's the place where God dwells with humanity, if that is the reality of the temple, you need this kind of language to describe the destruction of it. It is absolutely earth-shattering. And so verses 24 and 25 are not about the end of the created order. They're about the end of the present world order in the first century of the Jews and Israel and the temple, that whole world order is now to be no more. There's a hint here of, of Jesus' death as well. I don't want to complicate things too much. But the sun was darkened as Jesus died. And Luke says armies were camped around him while he died picking up on this same imagery because he is the true temple. So I think Mark has the dual kind of focus here of the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD as well as the death of Jesus in 33 AD. They go together. And those days of distress or that time of distress for Jesus was cut short only six hours and he is the ultimate elect and it was a time of unparalleled distress when the judgment of God fell upon him 
So these things need to be seen together. Verse 26, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is another apocalyptic image. And it's not about the Son of Man, that is Jesus, coming down from heaven to earth. If you read Daniel 7, where this image is from, it's very clear that the Son of Man is exalted to sit at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He comes to the Ancient of Days and is given all authority, all power and all dominion. In Daniel 7, he comes with the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And Jesus, in his earlier teaching in Mark chapter 9 and 10, again and again, has talked about his suffering. And so this looks like it means Jesus' exaltation after his suffering. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man coming in the clouds is an image of triumph and vindication. And we see this triumph and vindication in Jesus' resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. We also see this triumph and vindication of Jesus in the judgment on the temple and in the fall of the temple. From Mark's point of view, this image of the Son of Man coming in the clouds is about the complete triumph and vindication of Jesus. Initially through his resurrection and ascension but here it's also through the outworking of his prophecies against the temple which is kind of a seal of his triumph because the destruction of the temple vindicates his entire program and mission and that he is the true temple And then the gospel going out to all nations is the outworking of that triumph and vindication of Jesus. Verse 27, and he will send his messengers, the word angels in verse 27, angeloi, literally means messengers. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. Many people have read this. As on the last day, suddenly Jesus' followers will be gathered together. But the more natural meaning in the Jewish idiom of the time is that after Jesus' vindication and exaltation, he'll send his followers, that's you and I, out to the four winds to spread across the earth and tell people that Jesus is Lord and gather his people from all over the world into a single family. And then verse 28 to 31, now learn the lesson from the fig tree. We've had a fig tree before, but this is different. This time when the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Then verse 29, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. 
Jesus here is still talking about something that will happen in the generation of the disciples, verse 30. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. The generation of the disciples will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Then verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away and the temple which is the linchpin of heaven and earth will be taken away. But my words will never pass away. And then verse 32, no date is given about that hour or day. Nobody knows. Not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus as the Son doesn't know when that hour will be. This is not talking about the second coming. This is something that's going to take place in the generation of the disciples. And then we have this image that the church has picked up and developed in relation to Jesus' second coming of a homeowner going away on a long journey and he puts his servants in charge um, while he's gone and they need to watch and be ready for when he returns. And yes, Paul in 1 Thessalonians and elsewhere uses that type of image to talk about the second coming, urging us to be watchful and ready. But here it's not about the second coming. It's something Jesus says will happen within a generation. And what happens within the generation of the disciples is Jesus coming through his suffering and exaltation and the destruction of the temple. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he says the disciples need to be awake because they don't know when the master will come. He might come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow, or at dawn. You don't want to be asleep when that happens. So stay awake. Do not fall asleep. Be on guard. Be alert. These four possibilities of the time of his coming. Will it be evening? Will it be midnight? Will it be cockcrow? Will it be dawn? Are the four time markers in the rest of Mark's Gospel. Evening, the Last Supper and Betrayal. Midnight, the Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest. Cock crow, his trials and the denial of Peter. And dawn, the resurrection. There's been so much confusion about this, partly because we've read this text about the Son of Man coming as Jesus coming down. But it's not. It's about him going up and being exalted to the right hand of the Father through his resurrection, which happens at dawn. For many Christians, this is hard to understand. But Mark says in the middle of this chapter, let the reader understand We don't gain anything by hasty misinterpretation. We have to penetrate to the heart of what's being said. And we have to read this from chapter 11 onwards, which has all been been about the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. 
and the temple. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that the temple is where God said he would dwell with his people. That he would come back and dwell with his people. And Mark is saying Jesus is now that place, that temple, that joining of heaven and earth. And everything else must fall away. So how do we apply this very briefly? (coughs) We aren't in this period of history and yet we're still seeing wars and rumours of wars. We're not to be alarmed. That still applies. There still would be messiahs. We're not to be deceived. We still experience a degree of persecution. Thank God it's fairly minimal for us. But many Christians across the world are facing arrest, trial, torture and death because they love and follow Jesus. And some are being rejected by their families because of Jesus, and it's gut-wrenching. But the Spirit is with us, giving us the words to say. But the Son of Man has come in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, And has been given all authority, all power and all dominion. I love this image of birth pains. (laughs) That out of that labour and pain and duress and difficulty and exhaustion and suffering of those times in the first century, out of that has come the kingdom of God, (laughs) the new creation born, new life. Freedom in the Spirit. The Spirit poured out on all nations. The Gospel going out into the whole world. People across the globe worshipping God through Jesus Christ, the true temple. And we're in that age now of the church, which is about mission and prayer. The Gospel being preached the mission of the church to all nations, the extraordinary enabling of the Spirit. (laughs) And we see it in our times. What an amazing story of the whole world being impacted by the gospel. Wow! Who could have thought that that would actually happen? Every nation, tribe, language, people, group reached... Almost. Well, there's a few more. What an amazing thing. So it's the age of mission, but it's for us the age of prayer. We can come to God through Jesus Christ wherever we are, whoever we are, whatever nation we're part of. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to the temple. We can worship God in the middle of the Blue Mountains. Through Jesus Christ by faith alone. Oh, that is just mind blowing. I, I Friday night, Rowan Neat and Toby and Annie were praying for Ben and Libby, I think laying hands on, out the front of our house <laughs> for their upcoming marriage. 
And you can pray anywhere, right? And there they are laying on hands next to the street, cars going by, whatever. You can pray to God now anywhere and everywhere from every country. We can pray to God from the Blue Mountains. And he will hear us. We know him. It's just the revolution of all revolutions. We can talk to God. We have access to the Father. We know him. No matter who we are, no matter where we are. And this reality of prayer in the Spirit is just... Well, the new world has come. (laughs) Amen.